Welcome to Austinites. I'm your host, Frank Garza. Our guest this week is Mobley. Mobley is a singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and really just an all-around musical one-man show. I unfortunately haven't had the pleasure of seeing him perform live yet, but I've read a lot about it, and those reviews typically go something like this. Wow, how did that one guy do all of that by himself on stage? So Mobley and I had a really great conversation. We spent quite a bit of time talking about his creative process behind his latest album, Young and Dying in the Occident Supreme, and especially around the recent single he's released, James Crow. We talk about his background and how he ultimately morphed into this one-man musical show. And Mobley shares a lot of his thoughts and experiences with the pandemic and how that has impacted his life and his career. So, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mobley. Mobley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, I wanted to start with um, a story I read um, as part of the bio on your website. And uh, that's about a recent trip that you took to Thailand. And it sounds like the intention there was to kind of go and have a long overdue break. Yeah. Um, but then it kind of played out a different, <laughs> a different way, you know, um, which we'll get to. But I wanted to dig into that story more. And, and first, just can you tell me, um, you know, where were you at? You know, in your life, what kind of place were you at to where you felt like you needed this long, you know, over overdue break? Yeah, um, I I had been touring between like 150 and 200 dates a year for I I would say like five or six years, um, and. In the time, for most of the time leading up to that, I was also working another full-time job on top of that. Um, and uh, my my creative process is such that I'm basically doing everything myself. I'm um, writing music and recording it and producing it, and you know the artwork, the videos, and then the whole live show thing. Uh, so it's a it's a heavy lift and. Um, so I, at the time I, I was at the end of a run of dates in Australia. Um, and while I was over there, it was just like, I don't know when I'm going to be, uh, back in the snake of the woods. And, and, you know, I got paid to come over here. So it's just a little bit more to, to go, um, go over to, to Thailand, which I picked randomly, uh, and it seemed like a good place to kind of get away and um, and just spend some time in a in a new in a new environment. You can, I think, we as people can get really um, the spaces that we spend time in, probably to a greater degree than we often acknowledge, can really pattern our ways of thinking and being. And um, there can be a lot of value to to getting into a new space if you can. And so it felt like a, a good opportunity to just bring myself out of 
some of the patterns that I was in. Um, and yeah, it ended up being really creatively generative time. What was, you know, what was the plan in your mind as far as I'm going to Thailand to take a break? What was that going to look like? What did you anticipate doing? What did you want to do while you were there? Honestly, I didn't want to do anything. I, um, I, we flew into Bangkok and then the plan was to go south, um, and stay on this remote island, which is what we ended up doing. Um, and it was in this little apartment that was like 50 yards away from the beach. And, um, there's a little village where we could get food and, and stuff, but it was, it was very remote, like not, not a whole lot to do, not a whole lot to see besides just the natural, um, the natural beauty of the place. Uh, and I, I really just wanted to sit around for, for, for a few weeks and not really have to worry about any of the, any of the things that tend to bear down on me when I'm here in my, in my home, um, and, and really reachable. And so that, that was the plan. Um, but the first day that we were there, um, like I said, we went in, into Bangkok and when we were walking around Bangkok, I saw this knockoff Telecaster in the window of this music shop and it was like 50 bucks or something. And, uh, I had never played Telecaster before. So it was just like, all right, I'll pick this up and, um, it'll be something I can just noodle around on while I'm here. And then I'll, I'll get rid of it before I, I leave. And, um, so I took it to this, this little Island and then just all these songs started coming out of it. And, um, I ended up tracking most of the guitar for the record, like on the coffee table in this apartment, um, on this knockoff Telecaster. <laughs> yeah. And so did that. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, obviously, I think the the end result is is something great came out of that. Um, Thank you. Did it still did it still feel like um, a break to you? Was it was it enjoyable? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was enjoyable because um, I think when you're when you're a professional musician, uh, probably a professional creative person generally, but when you're when you have structured your creativity into a job. Um, there are ways in which you can, you can find yourself thinking about, um, thinking about a lot of things that are outside of the art itself. And I don't even think that's a problem. I mean, that's, that's just the world we live in. Um, I shouldn't say I don't think it's a problem. I don't think it's a failing. I don't think it's a personal failing to do that. Um, but, uh, because I didn't have a plan and because I didn't really, I wasn't really writing for any purpose. It really felt a lot more like the way that my, um, my creativity felt when I was first starting to write songs where I didn't, it wasn't anywhere near my thinking that I was going to be doing it for a living. Um, I wasn't even thinking about anybody hearing the stuff that I was making when I first started writing. It was just, this feels really good to make stuff. Uh, and so it was a lot more like that. Um, and I'm just fortunate that it, it came out in such a way that it was also professionally useful. And so how much of the, so when you left Thailand, first of all, like how long were you in Thailand? 
Um, between three and four weeks. Um, okay. So a, a nice, a nice little chunk of time. And so when you left, how much of the um, album was was done? How much uh, was left? Yeah. So all of the songs were written, um, and I would say like seventy five to eighty percent of the guitar was recorded, uh, and then I had. Um, I had sketches of uh, where what I wanted everything else to look like. I have the whole folder of voice memos and, and notes to myself about what I wanted all the other pieces to be. And so then I came back stateside, and uh, and it was basically just a matter of filling in the blanks with stuff that I stuff that I'd already come up with. Um, but yeah, the, the bulk of the work, almost one hundred percent of the writing, and, and like. 75 80 percent of the guitar was, was done in thailand wow that's pretty that's pretty it's pretty impressive <laughs> um <laughs> so you, you mentioned earlier and i and i've read and i've you know i've read quite um this mentioned um about you a lot is that you you're really a, a one man one man show and like the and in, in all as, aspects you know you write your own music you perform your own music you mix your own music you produce your own music it, it seems like you create and direct your own music videos and yeah. orchestrate these stage performances. Why, um, why, why do you think that is? Why do you think you enjoy, you know, doing all aspects yourself? Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a combination of kind of quirks of my personality and then just my, my personal history. Um, as far as, as far as my personality, I've always been a really detail oriented person. And so, um, I have opinions about everything in terms of the, the work that I'm creating. Um, and I, I've always, because I moved around a lot as a kid, um, I got really good at teaching myself things. Um, when you're, when you're always the new kid, you, you learn to observe whatever new context you're coming into, quickly learn the rules, learn the things that you don't know, learn how to fake them until you know them, all that sort of stuff. And that's really carried over into my professional life. And then the other part of it is I just, I grew up without very much money and I, that hasn't changed very much in the years since. And so, um, you know, I couldn't afford to hire hire people uh to do some of the more ambitious things that i had in mind and so if i wanted to get them done uh with the money that i had it was it was a matter of teaching myself how to do them and then putting in the time to, to pulling them off and so it just became it, it it started as a necessity and then became an ethic um and now it's it's just part of my process where as i'm creating this stuff I, I am thinking of all these facets of it. I'm thinking about what the artwork is going to look like and how I'm going to pull that off. I'm thinking about what I want to do for the videos, what, like what I'm going to do for the light show on the stage, and like what, uh, how I'm going to, like you say, kind of orchestrate these the, the shows. Because um, for people who haven't seen me live before, I do this one man act thing where um, I play. Basically, all of the typical rock band instruments um, by myself through you know looping and triggering and all sorts of stuff. But um, yeah, it's uh, 
it's a lot, but it's it's really gratifying to at the end of the process see this see the totality of um, of what I've created around this stuff and 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 to have it all have this real um, integrity across across all the aspects of it where it's like oh I was able to connect this little thing that maybe nobody will notice in the production to this thing in the lyrics that connects to this little thing in the art that connects to the video and um, it's really gratifying to really be able to build out this world. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I can I always got that feeling from people who like see these people that like build their own houses, you know, like yeah. literally like from the ground up and like, it just yeah, must yeah, be yeah. an amazing feeling for them to sit back and kind of just look at it all and yeah. think, man, don't like every single thing. So I, I can, yeah. I can see how that'd be really satisfying for you when you, when you see the final product come out. Totally. Um, I know on this on this new album, um, "Young and Dying in the in the Oxen Supreme," um, the two songs that you've released so far, um, I read that Jim Eno from Spoon um, helped you mix those. Yeah, and that's, I mean, what what, what you've just described that's that's pretty different than what your yeah. creation process has yeah. been before. So, how did it feel to kind of let somebody else in? And have that much of a creative influence on the music was that hard for you? Um, it, if it was hard, it was mostly hard in a technical sense. Um, I don't, I don't have a lot of ego about the stuff I make, uh, so it wasn't like I don't care about somebody else having uh, involvement. And you know, even in even in as much as I am making a lot of this stuff myself. Like obviously, even if I direct the music video, like if there are other people in it, somebody's holding the camera. If I'm on camera, like I'm, I'm doing a lot of collaboration, even as I am perhaps more involved than it's than is typical for for a musician. But um, it was pretty easy with Jim because uh, he 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 likewise just doesn't really have an ego about stuff. Um, if I if I, I think he views his role as a mixer, uh, as being a technician's role and a facilitator's role. So it was really like, this is what I'm going for, Jim. Um, I sent him, sent him the files, and then went over to the studio and, and sat there. And um, between him and, and his assistant Grant Epley, uh, the three of us just, uh, you know, talked and went around and around and around on the mix until it was in a place where we felt um, felt really satisfied on it. Uh, and the reason that I wanted to do that was because as comfortable and as confident as I am in my, my abilities, I knew that, that those were going to be the two singles. And um, it's, it's always nice to have uh, an outside ear that you can trust. Um, com- just confirming for you, no, this actually is good. Um, and so, I, I wanted that. I wanted to have that confidence um, coming out of the process uh, for, for for the singles and for my first record on a label. I just felt like uh, it felt like why not? So nobody's favorite. Uh, the first one and then James Crow, which just came out uh, pretty recently. Yeah, uh, I love the video. 
uh, to James Crow. To James Crow, I was telling you that uh, before we got started. But I love the filming of the first, you know, twenty to thirty seconds. How it's kind of the people walking past each other, and, and it changes the perspective of like, you know, versus what one person is looking at, then somebody passes by, and it changes their perspective. And they come out into that room, and you're there just playing, looking like you're having. Like a hell of a time playing in front of like a Rosh's audience. So I, I love the energy of that first like 30 seconds and the perspective Thanks, of it. Can you tell me a little bit about um, the origin story of, of James Crow and how that, how that song came together? Yeah. Um, the, the song, so it's kind of a, um, it, it's a, I would say it's a song that's heavily influenced by like 60s rock, rock and roll. Um, but also uh, the, the kind of sonic textures and um, emotional energy of a lot of stuff that was happening around the same time at like Motown and stuff like that. Um, and it's a song about racism. And the, 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 the genesis of the idea um, was this uh, kind of taking this conceit where you have Jim Crow, who's, you know, we're, we're familiar with Jim Crow laws and the, the, the racist um, apartheid regime under Jim Crow. And then the idea that Contrary to the popular myths, um, it's not as though Jim Crow just went away, but rather that Jim Crow like bought a new suit and changed his business cards, and now he's James Crow. He's a little more sophisticated. He's a little more savvy. He's adapted himself to the times, but his goals and many of his tactics are still what they always were. And so I, I wanted to use that metaphor as an idea or as a, as a way uh, for addressing um, addressing the modern incarnations of racial injustice and connecting them in a direct way to a direct and ongoing way to the, the injustices of the past. Um, the first line in the song is, I've been seeing the world through a dead man's eyes. And I very much feels a lot of the problems that we face in terms of um, the perpetuation of racial injustice, but also um, misogyny and homophobia and, and any, any other kind of retrograde vector of, of social marginalization and oppression that you can think of is that people are walking around with these bad ideas that they've inherited from people who, who don't even live anymore. So in a, in a very real, real sense, the ways that they're seeing the world are filtered through the lens of these dead people. They're seeing the world through a dead man's eyes. And um, so, yeah, the idea of the song was just to, uh, to do that. And, and also to, uh, also to connect it to the current moment, the, the refrain is the refrain of the chorus is, is take it all back now, take it all back now. And that is just a direct, direct allusion to um, the make, a, make America great again stuff and keep America great. 
Um, I think anybody who's who's remotely decent and and thinking about this stuff at all knows that you know that's code. That's you're saying take things back to the way they were, and for a whole lot of us, taking things back to the way that they, they were is a very scary, violent proposition. Um, and so, yeah, just I I felt it felt like a, a cool opportunity to connect all those things, and then the other piece of it, and the reason that I went with the kind of 60s sound is an aspect of the music from that time that has always kind of been haunting to me, um, particularly black musicians, but all musicians really from that time is it, it was such a time of clear injustice, just like flagrant wrong things were happening. And you have these people, um, many of them who are on the, who are on the, who are getting the short end of those sticks and they get up and they sing these beautiful songs and they smile and they make us all feel good. But for me, the specter of that oppression haunts all of that and it makes all of it, it gives all of this really creepy quality. And so I wanted to kind of try to tap into that as well. Um, and that's why there's this really, really harsh dissonance between the kind of upbeat sound of the music and the, the really um, weighty themes that the song is trying to address. I want to um, ask you about, um, you know, is this a theme um, that you sing about in a lot of you know your songs and, and prior work? And, and, you know, it kind of reminded me of something I read about your previous uh, album uh, yeah. where you said in like, um, on the surface, it can seem like a, a love album or there's a lot of songs about, relationships on the surface between two people but it on a deeper sense was kind of like your relationship with like the country or the world and um i think you even called it the dysfunctional relationship yeah is this you know kind of what you just described is that the undertone of that and is this a common um theme in a lot of your music yeah i think uh so my previous work um fresh lives volume one the, the the conceit on that record was that every song had to be a love song, um, but the love the love uh, the love song or the, the the romantic relationship and the songs was a metaphor for my relationship with the country, um, especially vis a vis my status as a black man in this country, and um, it was a very generative formula. Uh, for writing songs and and I still have a lot of affection for it. It's uh, the plan for the project is for there to be multiple multiple volumes of it that I continue to make for as long as I'm making music. So I plan to return to that. But for this record, I wanted to uh, do something a little more direct. And uh, so while I think on some of those uh, on on the songs on Fresh Lies. Reading them as love songs is a 100% valid reading. Um, I think there's there's not that same level of um, ambiguity in these songs. Where there's there's actually not a there's not a valid reading of <laughs> James Crow as a love song. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, that one I got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's cool. It's um, I, I'm glad I had I had read that. You know. Um, yeah about the first album because i don't know if i would be able to piece that together on my own but then um it's really nice on your on your website you have you know a lyric section uh where you can kind of read through 
you know, pretty much every song that you ever written. Yeah. Um, almost like a book of, uh, you would read through a book of you know, like poetry or something. Yeah. And uh, so it was fun to read through them and look, try and get those, kind of get the underlying tone, you know, for, from, 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 uh, from each, of the, each of the lyrics. I enjoyed that. Cool. Okay, so back to, uh, to Young and Dying. You, um, so you've gone to Thailand. You've written most of it. You come back to the U.S. You, I mean, it's finished ready to go. Um, I understand you had a tour planned around the release of it and then, and then COVID happened. Um, yeah. <laughs> that has to be quite a bummer. Can you talk about um, how all that unfolded for you, you know, personally and, and, and what it felt like, you know, going through all that? Yeah, it was, um, it was a lot. It was a lot. I, uh, I, I'll, as a disclaimer, before I say anything else, I'll first, you know, put into perspective, my health is fine. Everyone in my immediate family um, has, has fortunately maintained good health through all this. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to have a roof over my head. I'm not facing eviction the way a lot of people are facing it. I haven't had to face food insecurity or any of those things. So I consider myself very fortunate to have weathered this the way that, it, that I have. And um, I take very seriously the plight of, of everyone who, um, due to the, the, either the incompetence or the indifference of the people, uh, in charge have had to face much more dire straits. Um, so just bracketing that because I'm a musician and we're talking about music, um, speaking, speaking about it from the, the standpoint of my career, I was actually, uh, on a press promo tour at the time i i played a show in um in new york uh at barry ballroom massive crowd um and i had a bunch of meetings scheduled for the next day in new york and one by one the meetings get canceled because everybody's offices were closing and then we had a flight scheduled out to la so we fly to la we're in this motel um getting ready for the show the next day. And then we get word that the show is canceled, that uh, all shows are canceled, that all of our, you know, when you're, when you're doing promo, you do all these press runs, you go to radio stations, you go to, uh, like you might go to Facebook or YouTube or Vivo, you go to, you know, basically anywhere you see music promoted, you go and visit those people and you, you try to develop relationships with them and promote the new music to them. And so we had this whole whole list of places we were supposed to go planned out and it all it all starts getting canceled. So we're sitting in the hotel room um, trying to figure out if we can get a flight back to Austin early because there's nothing left to do out there. And uh, then uh, South by Southwest gets canceled. And so I think for a lot of people in this in our area, um, that was like the big domino where it's like, oh, okay, this is really, really serious. Um, and so I would say within the next 24 hours of that, you know, I had three different touring runs that were supposed to happen. They all got canceled. Um, like different people from my team were getting furloughed from the companies they were working for. Um, yeah, it all just started to, you know, it's the story everybody knows, but it all just started to fall apart. And, um, 
we had already put out a single. So we were like kind of in the middle of something and had to pause that. Um, it was about as, it was about as, uh, it was about as destructive from a career standpoint as I think it could have been without completely killing me. Um, so, uh, you know, we've been, we've been trying to be creative and, and stay active, uh, in terms of building back and, and getting in a good place with moving forward with the release, but, uh, it has definitely been a, a really big challenge and, and honestly, I think it's been a challenge that I don't think anybody's really figured out. I think the, the people who are doing okay are the people who already had established careers and fan bases of millions of people who they can ride out. Even if this goes for a few years, they can ride that out and then come back out the other side. But I know a lot of people who aren't in music anymore. They, it was just like, this is, this is too hard. I don't, I can't. It was already hard when I could play shows. It was already hard when I had ways of promoting my music, but if this is going to be another year, if this is going to be another six or seven months, I, I literally can't make this work. I have to find some other way of, of staying alive. So um, I think it's, uh, I don't think we're ever going to know what the toll on people's lives were, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of things, especially when it comes to people pursuing their dreams, there's a, there's an expiration date on this stuff. And when you just chop two years off, potentially a year, year and a half, whatever it ends up being for a lot of people like that puts them past the expiration date. And that, that, that means like, that's just something that they have to give up. And I think, um, I don't think we've even done a good enough job of, um, kind of mourning the clear tragedy of the lives lost. Uh, so I don't know if it's ever going to be in the cards for us to do the kind of mourning that we should be doing about the, the dreams and aspirations that have been casualties to, um, to the way that we've handled this pandemic. Yeah, you're right. And, and I mean, it sounds like you have a great perspective on that, um, that, yeah, it, it's kind of sucked for you, but in the greater picture, um, you're able to kind of look out and see that there's a lot of other people that are, you know, have really been suffering. So yeah. um, I'm sure that's helpful to be able to keep that in perspective because I can just certainly see how that um, would have been really tough for you. I mean, just from a momentum standpoint, um, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about you going all over the country, performing live shows, doing these press junkets and just like the the never ending day. I mean, it must've been like just an action packed day. And then probably a few weeks later, you're you're on your couch at home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, was this tough to like be going a hundred miles an hour and then all of a sudden <laughs> zero? It was. It was. Um, I will say I'm not comfortable with calling anything related to this pandemic a silver lining because I would gladly trade any benefits for the lives that we've we've lost needlessly. But I will say that a a perspective on what has happened that I think is interesting is that for the first and what is likely to be the only time in my adult life and, and many of our adult lives, um, I had no choice but to get off the, the, the hamster wheel. I had no choice but to step back from the rat race and 
no amount of uh, wishing and willing it, no amount of hard work, no amount of ambition on my part can bring live music back. And so it's an occasion to, it's for me, it's been an occasion to put that stuff down and really think about, you know, I'm just, I am just a, a very small being on a, on a very small rock floating in space. What are the things that actually really, really matter to me? And if I didn't have the, the pressures of pursuing a career, if I didn't have the pressures of, um, of trying to make art in a capitalist context, of trying to, um, trying to survive, trying to accrue enough resources to myself and my family that I don't have to fear sleeping out on the street. Um, if I could just be, if I could just be here on this planet, what would I be doing? And it's been hardening to, to discover that the answer is a lot of the same things. I would be doing a lot of the same things. Um, I would be writing music, but it's also been enlightening to, it's been enlightening to have it revealed to me that there are a lot of other things that I would be prioritizing, um, connecting with people, building community, um, trying to, trying to, to, to play an active role in trying to redistribute some resources from people who have a surplus to people who have just massive deficits. Um, and also just, you know, just slowing down a little bit and, and, and savoring, um, the, the things about life that can be really pleasant and sweet, uh, especially, especially against the backdrop where the, the fragility and brevity of life is just being brought into really, really sharp relief. Like people are just, just unthinkable numbers of people are just dying constantly now. And, um, it's, it's certainly been an occasion for me to, to, to reassess what those values are. And I hope that the same is true for our broader society, because I think, I think that, that this crisis has revealed a lot of ways in which our priorities are out of whack and need to be, need to be drastically overhauled. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have nothing to add to that. Um, very well, very, very well said. Um, what is the, do you know enough now to kind of look out at um, when Young and Dying might potentially be released or is it just completely on hold? No, it's, uh, it's back on track, uh, whatever that means. But um, we were looking at a release sometime in early 2021. I don't have an exact date yet, but we'll be announcing that in probably in the next month or so, um, as well as some... Uh, I'm, I'm working on some creative ideas for alternative safe forms of touring. So we're going to be making some announcements around that that I'm, that I'm excited about. Let's do a little bit of a hard turn here. Okay. And, uh, I want to talk about uh, young Mobley. Okay. Uh, you, as, you as a kid, what adolescence was like and uh, how you kind of got on this path to musician. And you've already told me um, a few hints at that. Um, but 
One thing I've I've read is that you were uh, you considered yourself a really shy kid, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of funny to think about because um, I've never seen you live. But one thing I consistently read about is that you're a pretty magnetic performer uh, on stage. <laughs> so, uh, were you a shy kid? And 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 can you think of any memories or or examples that that kind of help? Uh, I don't know. Give give image to that. Yeah. Um, I still am a shy kid, to be to be one hundred percent honest. I, the people who who knew me before I was a performer, uh, like my my immediate family and stuff. Every time somebody who knew me from before sees me perform for the first time, they can't believe it. Um, they're like, <laughs> "You seem you seem like a different person when you're on stage." Who is this guy? Uh, right, exactly. Um, so, uh. I guess I can kind of illustrate that by way of a couple or a few little stories. Um, in terms of my childhood, I really, I really did not like being the center of attention. Um, and to be, to be completely frank, I, I don't love it now, uh, but I'm more accustomed to it now. But I, I played, um, I played trumpet when I was in middle school and I got, I was first share, uh, and I, I gave up for share and sat in like the fourth chair because I didn't want to be the closest person to the audience. Um, and I did stuff like that all the time. I just, I didn't, I did not want to be, um, I did not want to be the focal point. Um, and I think kind of what transformed that for me as a performer, you know, when, before I went on my first tour, I had all these ideas about what my stage presence was going to be like. I was like, I just won't really talk very much. I'll just play the songs. I'll let the songs speak for themselves. And I'll come up, I'll play, I'll, I'll walk off, and that'll be it. It'll be kind of this mysterious thing. And I go on my first tour. Uh, you know, I got got rid of my apartment because I couldn't afford to be on tour and have an apartment at the same time. And I tried it the first night, and it just did not work. It did not work at all. Um, you know, I was... Why? Why? What happened? Like, why? Why didn't it work? It didn't work because I, you know, I, I was an unknown person playing music to people who didn't know me and didn't have any, any reason beyond, you know, just courtesy to, to care about what I was doing. And, um, and so, you know, I... I, I, I was still confident in the music, but I was like, they're just not, I'm not pulling them in enough. And so, uh, I tried it again the second night, still didn't work. So the third night I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do something else. And so I, I kind of flipped a switch and, and, and did a very different thing where I just literally demanded people's attention, uh, explicitly. I was like, you're going to pay attention to what I'm doing up here. Uh, And people found it to be engaging and it worked. And uh, it just kind of over time developed into whatever my stage persona is. And at this point, I don't even think about it. It just happens. Um, But it's, it's still something that is very, uh, that is very detached from me and basically every other setting. Like I don't even like to, to order pizza on the phone. Like I, I really not, 
I'm a pretty quiet and shy person. Um, if I'm not in an interview uh, where I know the, the interview depends on me talking about myself a bunch or, or uh, in a show uh, where I'm trying to engage and captivate an audience. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I was a shy kid and I, I think I, I kind of remain one, but this is just the one exceptional area where uh, my, I guess my fight or flight instincts know that, that my survival depends on <laughs> um, really commanding, commanding the room. You still, um, you know, even though it's more of like automatic now and you don't even think about it when you go on stage, is there still a lot of butterflies um, in the moments before you get up there or how does, what it would sound to be like? You know, it's funny. I get, I get mild butterflies still before a show, but those aren't really that bad. Cause I, I usually feel so prepared that I'm just not too worried about it. But the, the really, the part where I think the shyness kicks in and, um, and I feel like a really negative feeling is actually after the show. I don't know if you've ever, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to analogize it, but if you've ever had like an argument or something where you lost control a little bit and you yelled and then you feel weird and bad about the fact that you yelled mm-hmm. and that kind of like the <laughs> feeling after that's how I feel after basically every show It's like, I was being so loud. What, what was, what was I doing? You know what I mean? Where like, uh, there's still part of me that just feels kind of a, a shame or something about taking up so much space. And so I, without fail, after every single show, I just have this weird, cringy feeling from, um, from having, I think it's just the, uh, I guess to borrow the, the really common, um, the really common metaphor, I, the, there's a, a, a cringy, shamey feeling that I have whenever I come out, uh, come completely out of my shell and then crawl back into it. Yeah. No, I, it's interesting. It's the analogy is, is, is perfect. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't think, I don't know if I ever could have put it, uh, that way, but that, that, that helps me understand it for sure. You mentioned that you, uh, moved around a lot as a kid. Um, I read that you, you, you come from a military family and, and maybe is, is that the case? And if so, yeah. you know, which of your parents were the military and, um, I just love to hear about some of the, the places you lived, um, during yeah. your childhood. Yeah. My father was a Marine and we lived, um, mostly in Western Europe and, and in the, around the Southern U S. Um, I, I grew up, I, I learned to read in Spain and my little brother learned to speak in Spain. Actually, his first language was Spanish. Um, and then I, I learned to write in England and then basically I don't have any conscious memories of myself in America until a little bit before middle school. So, um, that was kind of my, my first introduction to, uh, American life. And so I think that's given me, uh, uh, on top of just the usual new kid stuff moving all the time, it's given me a perspective on what it is to 
live in this country and the ways in which this country understands itself and is understood by the rest of the world that perhaps isn't isn't so common here yeah yeah i it's so interesting to um to travel outside the country and hear what other people uh hear their perspective on on what it is to be an american and um i'm just always blown away by how much knowledge they have about how every everything going on over here you know i mean that's something i think it's really hard for us to um i don't know if we'll ever have that perspective you know where we're like i mean no matter what country i've ever been to you know i i hear american music i um i see uh banners for american movies that are playing like in theaters there's just our culture just you see it everywhere and um that's that's actually pretty weird we don't think much we don't think much of it, but it's, it's, it's weird. weird. Yeah. yeah. So when did you go, when did, when did Mobley, when yeah. was Mobley born? Um, and, and how did what is, you know, does the name come from anything? Does it, does it mean something special to you? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a combination of a few things. Um, the, so it was originally a band. Um, okay. And, uh, the band's name came from mostly came from a dream I had. Uh, it's very, it was a very abstract dream that I, I couldn't, I don't think I could put it into words that would make sense, but that's where the <laughs> name came from. Uh, and then over time, uh, the band shrunk. It was, there were four people at the, at its largest. And then there were three people. And then a few years ago, there were two of us. And then, um, my it was me and a drummer, and my drummer at the time couldn't make it out on a tour that I had booked, a like two month tour, and so he he got hurt and um, he needed to stay so that he could keep his health care on his job, um, and so I had to make a choice then between doing the tour, well, dropping off the tour, doing the tour acoustic, or coming up with like this show that I can do myself. And the only one that sounded exciting to me at all was, was coming up with a one man show. And when I did that, um, it just, the trajectory of my career just went like that. Um, the, I think the crowd's response really changed because it's kind of an unusual show that I don't think people have a lot of template for understanding what's happening and, they aren't used to seeing a show like that. Um, also, I think there's something about connecting with one individual doing this, like knowing that, oh, this is just one person, one person's ideas, and I'm engaging with them in this really intimate way. I think there's something about that that's appealing to people. But then also, just from a real dollars and cents perspective, like it was double the money that I was making before. So, um, it just made my my career uh, my career instantly viable, and um, so from that time on, I've music has been the only thing I've I've done, and so uh, the the band became me, <laughs> and and uh, and that's that's how that's how I became Mobley. So I know we have to wrap up here in about ten minutes or so. Um, so I'm just going to ask you a few 
more rapid fire questions and no pressure on your end to, to respond rapidly. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you're really, I'm really excited to see you live for the first time because I've I've read, you know, so much about, you know, how amazing of a show that is. Um, and so on the subject of live performances, I wanted to ask you about, um, some of your favorite memories of, of your live performances. Can you, um, what is a venue? Um, that you love to play at? So I have a few answers. Um, here in Austin, a venue that I really love playing is ACL 310. Um, it's, it shouldn't be as good a stage as it is, but it's just, it's really well designed and it's well, the size of it, the orientation of the room, like the location of the bar in relation to the stage, it's just all exactly how I would have done it. And so it just feels very hand in glove whenever I play there. Um, so that's one of my favorite places to play. There's a, there's a room, um, I think it's being renovated now, but it should open back up once everything gets going again. But there's a room in Baton Rouge, Louisiana called the Spanish moon. That's one of my favorite places to play as well. It's, um, it's a really old building. It's, it's brick and wood and the wood has that. I don't know how much you know about acoustics, but there's this quality that the old wood has because it's, it's soft in a, in certain ways and, um, and a, a warmness that it can give sound when it, when it resonates within, within it and, 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 and off of it. But, um, the room just has a really the, the brick and the old wood just give the, the the tone of the room a really pleasing quality to me and it's it's a shotgun room really skinny so like people's bodies are packed in tight right in front of you uh, i really love that room and then i really like uh bowery ballroom in new york which is actually the last place i played a live show before all this shut down um i've had i just had some really good shows there and really good experiences come out of the shows that I've had there. Uh, so those are probably three of my favorite places to play in the country. What's a um, live performance of yours or a show you've put on that you'll always remember? I would say probably uh, not this, not this past summer, but the summer before I threw a party at cheer up Charlie's, which is another one of my favorite venues. Um, to celebrate uh, signing my my label deal, and we I originally just planned it as this really small thing. I, I only I was only planning to have like forty or fifty people be there, and we put up tickets and they sold out right away. And so we kept making it bigger and bigger, and we ended up having like five hundred people out there. Um, and that was, it was just a really fun heartwarming night like it felt it kind of felt like a pep rally uh, i played i played sports in, in high school and so um something i actually really miss from that time is the the, the really physical visceral ways that you get to celebrate good things happening in sports like <laughs> yeah. somebody scores a goal and you just scream at the top of yeah. your lungs and run around and it's fine <laughs> 
And yeah. you can't really like when I get good news as a musician, typically I'm like on my couch in my underwear and I can't like run around <laughs> and scream and high five a bunch of people. Uh, but, but that was the night where I kind of got to do that. Um, it was also the first time I ever crowd surfed. So that was, that was a really fun night. I, I don't think I'll ever forget that one. Let's talk about Austin a little bit. Um, how did you end up in Austin? What's your, what's your Austin origin story? Yeah, I, uh, coming out of school, I knew that I was going to pursue music. And so I knew that my only real choices for having the kind of career that I wanted to have, making the kind of music that I wanted to make were, um, in the United States anyway, were New York, LA or Austin, um, Nashville was like a remote possibility, but um, the kind of music that dominates the industry there is is not really the kind of music I'm interested in making. So uh, I I knew that New York and LA weren't right for me. I, I'm kind of a like I said, I'm pretty introverted, and I I like I like a quieter pace, and um, and so I came out here. And interned at a really small, now defunct independent label, I Eat Records, and just got to get the lay of the land. And it felt like a place that I could could uh, could make a go of it. And and so I, I moved out here, and um, it's worked out pretty well so far. And which neighborhood do you live in in Austin? I live. What's the technical name for my neighborhood? It's like the, I think the technical name of my neighborhood is the North Austin Civic Association. It doesn't have a cool name. It's, it's like, that's what it's, that's what <laughs> that it's is very like official. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. I'll like, have to, like, up to Google map name. that. <laughs> right. Like where, like where other, other neighborhoods is, let's say like Terrytown or Hyde Park or whatever, like mine actually says, I think, I think it's North Austin Civic Association, but it's uh, like the. Uh, North Lamar 183 area. And what's some place in your neighborhood that, that people just have to check out to see or go or do? There are a lot of places there. It's a really, um, it's a really, it's a, it's a neighborhood with a really big immigrant population from all over the world, lots of parts of the world. Um, and consequently it's got, like there are a lot of shops and restaurants that uh, that offer cuisine from all over the world, and so if you want to try, you know, obviously really good Mexican food, really good Thai food, Vietnamese food, Chinese food, um, Mediterranean food, basically any any cuisine from. The broader parts of the world uh it's available here but probably my favorite go-to right now is this little family restaurant called tan mai um that has really good uh they have they have kind of pan-asian cuisine but their specialty i think is, is vietnamese food when you've been let's say you're out of town touring for a long a long period of time you come back to austin uh you've missed it uh, your first free day, you're like, I, I need to go out and just have, I need to have an Austin day. I need to have my perfect yeah. Austin day. What does that look like? Or what could that look like for you? 
Oh man, it's I'm I'm really a homebody, especially once I've been gone for a while. But for me, it probably looks like in the morning. So I stay up really, really late. Um, like really late. Like I might go to sleep at like 7 a.m. or something like that, and then get up at eleven or twelve. So if it's one of those nights, which it probably is if I just got back from tour, I'll at like 5 a.m. I'll go to Shipley's and get a donut and come back and like watch cartoons for a few hours and then go to sleep and then wake up, um, go get lunch at 10 Mai, like go get a vermicelli bowl or something, Uh, walk my dog around the neighborhood in the late afternoon. And then go play pickup basketball at the Y and, uh, and then come home <laughs> real, real simple, but that's, that's, that's a very solid day for me. Okay. Well, you know, again, I really want to thank you for taking the time uh, to speak with me today. And, uh, before we wrap up, I just wanted to give you the floor to, um, you know, if there's anything that you wish we would have talked about or, uh, something importantly left out or just any message or, announcement you want to put out in the world. I wanted to give you the opportunity to, uh, to do that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I don't think I have anything special to say. Uh, I would just encourage people to check me out uh, online. My website is mobilyhoo.com and you can find my social media and stuff there. And then I've been saying this because I think people aren't as aware of it as perhaps they should be. But uh, if you're interested in supporting me, supporting my art, it is more important than you would realize to just like follow on social media and and um, engage in that way. Like any any number that you see displayed, so like the number of followers, or the number of likes, or the number of retweets, or the number of streams, anything that's facing you that has a count on it, um, people in the industry pay attention to that and make decisions based around it. Like who gets to play what festival gets decided in no small part based on who has the most Instagram followers, which is absolutely absurd to me, but is a real thing. So um, not just with me, if there's any artists you support, I encourage you to um, engage with them in as many ways as possible to make yourself visible to the people who make those kinds of decisions that you you support uh, the, the, the particular artist. Well, yeah. thanks again, Mobley. Yeah, and thank you for having me. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Austinites. If you enjoyed the show, can you do us a favor and share it with a fellow Austinite? That will help us build more community, which is what we're all about here. You can also follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast medium is to get notified when new episodes are released.